1: Wondery, rocketmoney.com
2: slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, Or text WonderyPod Pod to 500 500.
3: Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. We're in Newport, Rhode Island at the historic Breakers. By design, this 70-room cottage, that's what they called it, was built as a summer home for Cornelius Vanderbilt II back in the 1890s. It's a prime example of gilded-era architecture and design. Of course, much of our focus this morning is going to be on Modern design, including design on a more personal scale, as Martha Teichner will explain in our cover story.
4: What do Beyoncé, Kate Hudson,
5: why would you want to look like everyone else,
4: and Martha Teichner absolutely have in common? Signature. We are all part of the athleisure explosion. Now the star performer in U.S. apparel sales. Just a fad or something else? Athleisure ahead this Sunday morning.
3: The Breakers is a meticulously preserved monument to an era of opulence. Not every modern-day home is so blessed, which is where the TV show that Jane Pauley has been watching comes in. This is equivalent
6: to you finding hardwoods under carpet. Oh, my goodness. This makes me happy.
7: That's what I do best, cheesy and dorky.
6: TV's capital of home renovation,
8: Waco, Texas. Where the fixer-upper magic happens with the magicians, Chip and Joanna Gaines. (laughs) Ahead...
7: On
3: Sunday morning. Not even a Vanderbilt could manage to squeeze a whole golf course into the seaside estate. When it comes to designing today's golf courses, a legendary golfer is more than willing to chip in, as Jim Axelrod will now show us.
9: It's absolutely perfect. Jack Nicholas may very well be the greatest golfer ever to swing a club.
3: I
10: think this is too busy here. Okay. Let's we'll expand the lake just make sure we see water.
9: And today, at the age of 76, he is also one of the game's most sought-after
10: course designers. Most people work all their life to retire to play golf. Well, I played golf all my life to retire to work. You gotta create, I mean,
9: on the course with Jack secure, Nicholas like on later Miranda, on Sunday morning. The From the summer house of
3: Vanderbilt to the house of Dior, Seth Doan will be taking us to the south of France to visit the home of the legendary fashion designer Christian Dior. When Christian Dior bought this house,
11: he dreamed of creating a perfect retreat in the French countryside. Today, that dream is alive and well. You've just seen the house. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
6: It's unbelievable. It's breathtaking.
11: Later on Sunday morning,
3: the House of Dior. Nancy Giles gets a lesson in decorating with plants. Then Tracy uncovers the art of the matchbook. Lee Cowan looks up the latest in skyscraper design. Anthony Mason stops off to chat with the man who redesigned London's double-decker buses. We'll have much more besides. Ahead. Higher and thinner.
10: This spot right here is just a little hot.
3: And golfer Jack Nicholas charting his own course.
10: Welcome to Play It,
12: a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: We're in the Great Hall at the Breakers. It is great, isn't it? You can well imagine Cornelius Vanderbilt II dressed to the nines and welcoming his guests, all of them in the formal attire of the time. Nowadays, Martha Teichner tells us, Casual is king.
4: Once upon a time, there was Casual Friday. Now it's more like casual 24-7 in cities and suburbs, coast to coast, for both men and women. You see it not just on the street, but in offices. If a billionaire CEO like Mark Zuckerberg can wear his hoodie to work, why can't everybody else dress down? except now it's about more than wearing jeans or something resembling pajamas. It's about workout clothes that have grown up. There's a name for her look, besides gorgeous, athleisure, with or without a body like Beyonce's in or out of the gym. Americans, American women especially, have made it the hottest thing in the apparel industry.
8: As goes Beyonce, so goes, I would say, any number of trends. That's going to be an image-driven story. So
4: there's... Robbie Myers is editor-in-chief of Elle, which put Beyonce wearing her own athleisure clothing brand on its May cover.
8: Being athletic and going to yoga or whatever it is that you do is actually a real part of these women's lives. And they like the way they look. They like the way they feel.
4: What about the people who never go near a gym, but wear athleisure?
8: The idea that Americans want to be comfortable no matter what they do, certainly it, you know, has permeated the culture.
4: Where did it all begin? Myers has a theory.
8: You might want to go back to Jane Fonda. And the famous workout tape of 1982. Are you ready to do the workout?
4: Athleisure, way before it was called that. In 1998, along came Lululemon with premium-priced yoga apparel that took to the streets. Which brings us to 2015. Americans spent nearly $44 billion on so-called Active wear up 16% over 2014. Meanwhile, denim sales have taken a hit, down 5% or more every year since 2013. Athleisure companies such as Fabletics have caught the wave.
8: I think when we started we realized pretty quickly we were on to something big. But it is very rare to be able to grow a business to $200 million in a space of two and a half years.
4: Geraldine Martin Coppola is general manager of El Segundo, California-based Fabletics, an athleisure line whose co-founder and inspiration is the actress Kate Hudson.
13: I am kind of obsessed with the splatter print.
4: See the leggings?
13: They were the leg up. That
4: launched Athleisure, for women anyway. What's your best selling item?
14: Our leggings. It's uh, a core essential style that the company was founded on. Pads on it.
4: Sean Kearney is head of design at Fabletics.
14: We update it in great colors, textures, prints, this little more purpley pink. They create whole themed wardrobes. What's going to be the the wow factor.
4: It's fast fashion. From design to delivery, eight weeks. Fabletics lives mostly online. Paying subscribers get discounts. New collections are released the first of every month. That's it, that's it, that's it. But with plenty of incentives in between to lure shoppers
1: guys look at me
4: feast your eyes on jamie and ken brand ambassadors doing for the fabletics blog
1: nice nice align the feet perfect
4: what you do
14: right
15: poor guy only
14: in your dreams (laughs) there's a ton of things happening with the community with social media we have a several million followers on facebook it's just been easier to talk to the customer the company has now opened seven retail
4: stores as well. What you notice there, in addition to all the different ages and body types, is high-tech textiles. How big a factor is the whole concept of performance fabrics in this whole athleisure revolution?
2: You know, it, it, it's absolutely huge.
4: Of- Durand Guion is vice president for men's and oh, kids' fashion for Macy's.
2: Everything from keeping you warm and keeping you cool and whisking away
11: moisture. Think
4: fancy new synthetics
11: with sunscreen
4: in them, even. But the magic word is compression, meaning snug and stretchy.
2: You've got the. And you've got that compression pant there.
4: Why are they called compression pants for men and leggings for women? (laughs) Because
16: guys wouldn't buy them if they were called leggings.
4: (laughs) (laughs) They wear them under shorts. But the biggie for men is the lightweight, slimmed-down sweatpant, now known as the jogger. The influencers for men's athleisure...
2: ...are really the superstar athletes, the Steph Currys of the world, the LeBron James, the Russell Westbrooks. But athleisure
4: has also made it out of the locker room onto the runway. Here, Alexander Wang for H&M. My real gut on this is that this
14: is something that is here to stay. Oh, I don't think it's a fad. Totally not a fad, by any means. It's a complete, complete lifestyle shift. So, athleisure for all?
4: You were talking about leggings, right? I mean... Absolutely. (laughs) I'm in.
3: Some cottage, the story of the Breakers is next.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: The Breakers, this so-called cottage, is the crown jewel of Newport, Rhode Island but a city that you may be surprised to learn was a leading slave trading port during the 1700s, a summer retreat for southern plantation owners during the early 1800s. Newport later on attracted leading industrial tycoons of the Gilded Age. Chief among them was Cornelius Vanderbilt II, grandson of the founder of the New York Central Railroad. Vanderbilt bought the original breakers, built of wood, in 1885. After it burned to the ground a few years later, he hired architect Richard Morris Hunt to design its replacement. Completed in 1895, the rebuilt Breakers is a 70-room Italian Renaissance-style palazzo. It covers nearly 140,000 square feet and features some 300 windows, many with commanding views of the ocean. Not that the Breakers is the only Newport College, a Vanderbilt built, Nearby stands the Marble House, built between 1888 and 1892 by Cornelius' younger brother, William. Also designed by Richard Morris Hunt, William Vanderbilt gave it to his wife, Alva, as her 39th birthday present. Today, both the Breakers and the Marble House belong to the Preservation Society of Newport County. Both are also National Historic Landmarks, and make very clear why Mark Twain coined the expression the Gilded Age. This is the largest of the Breaker's 27 fireplaces. And all it takes to light a rip-roaring fire is just one small match. Ben Tracy now pays homage to The Matchbook.
1: They come in different shapes, sizes, and colors. Little books in boxes, concealing the fire within. But sparks of creativity can turn matchbooks from simple fire starters into tiny
17: works of art. They are. They're design gems.
1: Richard Green is what's called a faluminist. I don't particularly like that. Okay, matchbook collector.
17: I prefer the term matchheads.
1: You might say he wears his passion for his hobby on his sleeve. Do you ever walk by a matchbook or box that you don't take?
17: Oh, absolutely, all the time. Those ugly, plain white ones.
1: (laughs) You have standards.
17: Oh, absolutely, don't we all? (laughs) Don't we all? I'll show you a beautiful one. This is a favorite of mine. The first thing I look at is the design. When you open it up and you look at it inside, it's got Fu Manchu on every match. And so I look at it to see how the type has been used, whether they've used the format of the matchbook in some clever way. Some are clearly
1: quite clever. Others, quite elaborate. The matchsticks themselves, part of the design. Green's collection of more than a quarter million matchbooks.
17: This one happens to be for embalming fluid. And it's a-
1: catalogs how historically they have been used to sell everything from paintbrushes to politicians. Some are rare. Some are
17: racy. uh, This happens to be called a feely. It's slightly embossed in certain areas. And some are racist. And here we have some political parties such as the Ku Klux Klan and the John Birch Society.
1: More than a century ago, Pabst Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was the first business to see the potential in matchbooks as mini billboards. 20 silent salesmen tucked inside. Other companies soon followed.
17: You just wouldn't be in business without having a matchbook.
1: There is debate about who invented the matchbook. In 1892, Pennsylvania patent attorney Joshua Pusey filed a patent for what he called the flexible match. It was meant to be attached to and enclosed by a suitable cover, folded and adapted to be open and closed as the covers of a book. But Charles Bowman, another Pennsylvanian, patented the matchbook design we know today. These four words are among the most commonly printed phrases of all time. But the matchbook itself has long been under fire, replaced in large part by the disposable lighter and seemingly made irrelevant by smoking bans that have swept the country in the past decade.
2: We have matchbooks available at the front desk uh, every day.
1: Michael Lamonico is chef and managing partner at Porterhouse Bar & Grill in New York City. His is one of many restaurants, bars, and hotels that are giving the matchbook a second chapter.
2: I get to remind people who've been here that they have been here. And this remembrance that they take with them, this little memory box, uh, they get to keep, remember that they've been here, and tell their friends about us.
17: Here are a couple of what we call barrels. But for
1: Richard Green, it's not just about advertising. Matchbooks tell a story. Our collective history the good and the bad, one square inch at a time.
17: Matches encompass every aspect of popular culture, whether it's entertainment or politics or industry or business, art, design, typography, whatever it is, music, they're all in matches.
3: Ahead,
7: So you are going thing. to go
6: with it, you think, final? I want to go with four. Okay, fine. Give him more shelter. All
3: right, that's it. Pull something the real like fixer-uppers. Like How's this for a kitchen with oceans of room? You say yours needs a little redoing? Well, our Jane Pauley knows just who to turn to.
6: I want to okay. show you what we're doing in the kitchen with these. All right, let's Grab see what one. we got. If you're not already addicted... Okay. I think this bracket to me is like screaming, let's do one, one more shelf. shelf. Okay.
8: Meet Chip and Joanna Gaines. The rising stars of HGTV's Fixer Upper.
7: We take the worst house in the best neighborhood, and we turn it into our client's dream home.
8: Are you all ready to see your Fixer Upper? They've renovated dozens of homes in Waco, Texas. <laughs> awesome. Here's the ship lab room. I think it looks great. It looks really good. She has the vision.
2: Today's demo day.
8: He executes the plan. And after weeks of construction, Joanna has one day to set the stage for the big reveal.
6: Now it's the finishing touches. It's all the things that truly make this house feel like a home I'm getting to do tonight. So I love this time. Where is the furniture? It's in my it's in my furniture uh, warehouse. <laughs> I call it like what the hoarding it? zone. No, it's, it's, it's the it's storage. What do you call this collection?
8: Joanna's um, treasure trove? Um, it's Yeah. Lentils, doors. So these are really tall. An old garden gate,
6: full of possibilities she alone can see. When I look at something like that, I immediately see two twin headboards built into the wall. For if I ever do a little girl's room, I'll need this one. Why does it have to be built into the wall? Why wouldn't you just like I would? I think it makes it more interesting.
8: Joanna has the designer's eye, but Chip was the original fixer upper. He flipped his first house while still a student at Baylor University in Waco.
7: I just buy distressed properties and then renovate them and sell them.
8: How did you know how?
7: You know, that's the million-dollar question. Kind of like a a mechanic might tinker with a car. I did that with houses. But how did you
8: know how? (laughs) Trial and error. (laughs) (laughs) Lots lots of trial and error. There was a lot of error. Joanna was a communications major at Baylor. And prepping to take over the family business, selling tires. You know us as a locally owned family-operated tire store with the lowest
6: price guaranteed. Chip became a very steady customer. He's always made me laugh. That's why I fell in love with him. There's something about his humor that I don't know. I would just always be rolling thinking this guy is interesting. Newlyweds,
8: they started renovating small houses together. Four years ago, Joanna was discovered by a blog and then HGTV came calling. I would
6: say within a few weeks they had camera crews down. Expect there to be, you know, five to ten percent. Chip was a natural. That's
8: what
7: I do best: cheesy and dorky. Yep. I've always kind of been the type to where I felt like cameras were following me around, sort of in a pretend way, you know.
8: One. But Joanna two, was a revelation. Three. Ah! He was actually pretty sure that there'd be a star in this show and maybe he was a little surprised that it's you. I still
7: to this day, I'm just like, I don't know if they're watching the same show that I'm watching, but there's a clear star here that has been born and the country seems to think it's my wife and I'm telling you it's me.
8: Well, it's both of you. you. The Lone Star State is big enough for two more stars. Let me see what 16 feet is. And they're big enough to share the spotlight.
7: That would be to there.
8: Fans know Clint Hart. Joanna's go-to carpenter.
7: I met Joanna and she said, hey, if I wanted you to build something, could I just like draw some stuff down on a piece of paper? And at the time, Jane, I had built maybe two or three tables and a bed of which none of them had sold. You exceeded our expectations as always. Good work, dude.
6: Way to go, Clint Hart.
0: People will say like, so how has this show changed your life? And I'm like, well, I'm sitting with Jane (laughs) Pauly, you know, in my (laughs) shop. You're just natural
8: born entrepreneurs, Mm. the Mm. both of you. Sure. And when you have an idea, it gets executed Hmm. pretty darn fast. Hmm. There's a real estate company, bed and breakfast, furniture line, paints and rugs, a book coming out in the fall, and their most ambitious undertaking so far, The Silos, twin rusting hulks on the Waco skyline, now a landmark, drawing 25,000 visitors a week to their Magnolia Market. I just love the stuff she does. It looks like stuff you would have in your home. She's just brilliant. Nobody's mentioned Chip yet. No. Chip is just awesome. She's <laughs> just awesome. He is <laughs> funny.
7: I'm offering fifty. I'm going to take your you fifty dollars. Right
6: Chip, don't do it. I'll fifty bucks. Just... Oh! Oh
8: my God! Perhaps the ultimate fixer-upper is the city of Waco, Texas, the unlikely capital of home renovation.
7: I feel like to some extent, this is California back in the gold rush days or Alaska during its boom.
8: You know, I'm thinking if you can make it here, Mm -hmm. you can make it anywhere. I like that.
7: I like that. I think uh, Sinatra would probably be turning over in his grave, but I'd (laughs) take that. I'd take that any day of the week.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: You are looking at an ingenious example of design, perfect for a rainy day. Good design is all around us, as Susan Spencer will be showing us throughout the morning.
15: Sure, it keeps you dry. But have you ever really looked at your umbrella?
14: Most people take it for granted, and they don't realize the intricacies that are involved in make that simplicity. you got a shaft, you mm-hmm. have a runner, you have a stretcher, and ribs.
15: When it comes to design, says mechanical engineer Dave Kong.
14: You just press that button there.
15: What button, this button here? Yep. The case is open and shut. Whoa! The umbrella is brilliant.
14: There's no engine, no motor, no electricity, nothing. It's just one simple movement. Eight arms extend itself, and there's a huge surface area. And all it, it wants any... to do is protect you. That's all. <laughs> it does one thing.
15: It's been doing that one thing for thousands of years. So what genius thought this up?
14: Some people say it was it originated in China. Some people say it originated in Egypt. It was originally uh, used for shade. Umbra is the uh, the, the Latin word for shade.
15: Each year, Kong says, Americans buy more than 33 million umbrellas, all shapes, all sizes. Perhaps they'd buy far fewer if the things lasted longer.
14: We've all had an inverted umbrella. We've all had the fabric ripped from the ribs.
15: Why is it embarrassing to have an inverted umbrella? (laughs) It is. You look foolish. Kong turned his umbrella obsession into a business, Davik Umbrellas. Do you find that you're conscious as you walk down the street, you look at people's umbrellas?
14: Oh yeah, I'm always (laughs) looking for mine.
15: We met Kong at his warehouse in New Jersey. Every now and then you'll see an umbrella just lying there on the street.
14: It's sad, a fallen (laughs) comrade.
15: But he claims that does not happen to his umbrellas, meticulously made of steel, high quality fiberglass, and aircraft grade aluminum. So this is the baby, and costing 50.
14: We imported the wood from Italy.:
15: Two for this one of burnished wood, 350 dollars.: It's the
14: Rolls-Royce of umbrellas.:
15: For 125 dollars, Kong even has an umbrella with a computer chip in the handle.:
14: If you accidentally leave this umbrella behind and you walk away 30 feet, you'll get a notification and alert
15: making it hard to lose.
14: Your umbrella is
15: calling you. Please. It's talking to you. (laughs) Remember how much I cost. Don't leave me here. (laughs) But forget the price. It is after all, a masterful design.
3: Next, a visit to the house of Dior the actual house of Dior. From Newport, Rhode
13: Island, it's a Sunday morning by design.
3: Ah, France. This lavish music room at the Breakers features a French Empire piano. Today, France is where you'll also find the house of Dior. We don't mean the fashion business, We mean the actual house of the late Christian Dior. Seth Doan is there, and he's got company.
11: There was plenty to catch one's eye as a seemingly endless line of Mercedes deposited fashionistas, models, and an Oscar winner. But even actress Charlize Theron agreed the real star of this night was the house.
13: I'm like living in a bit of a magical fantasy world right now. Why? Well, just walking through here, you, you can't help but, you know, try to imagine things that happen in rooms, and my imagination
6: just goes crazy.
11: Just like legendary designer Christian Dior's imagination did when he created this opulent retreat in the French countryside.
6: I've had like the biggest smile on my face since I've gotten here because it feels like it's filled with joy. <laughs>
11: Theron, the face of Dior perfume for more than a decade, and one year, please, Charlize, you can be here, lent her star power earlier this month to the grand reopening of Dior's Chateau de la Col Noire, nestled in the Provence region of southern France.
12: He created this place for his own happiness.
11: Dior historian Frédéric Boudelie showed us around. Even all of these decades later, Dior still looms large here. Yeah, yeah, we are really proud of our founding father. (laughs) Dior bought the chateau in 1951 and started work on it, but then died unexpectedly just about six years later. The house fell into other hands until three years ago when the company bought it back and started restoring it to the way it was the detail-obsessed Dior had sketched out this entryway floor, just like he might have sketched a dress. Good evening, Mr. Dior. Hello, Mr. Murrow. Skills he demonstrated for Edward R. Murrow on CBS's Person to Person back in 1955.
3: Now, just what is it that you're sketching there, Mr. Dior?
14: I am sketching a
10: suit for this spring. a big collar, an open
3: neckline, you see. Do you always sketch as quickly as that? Yes, I have to do it.
11: By using old plans and photographs and buying back original furnishings at auction, the house is now part museum, part tribute, and a way for the company to reconnect with its roots.
14: We are now in the personal private apartment of Christian Dior in the middle of the castle, and we are in his personal Office.
11: Dior was not always surrounded by such grandeur. A letter on his desk reveals just how far he'd come after moving with his family to the nearby town of Kalyan with few prospects. So, Dior writes this letter in 1940. 40, yeah. He's
14: jobless. Yeah.
11: And six years later, he would create this company. Yes.
14: and seven years after, he's a king of fashion.
11: Dior founded his fashion-forward company in 1946, injecting glamour back into women's clothing in the wake of World
14: War II. Just after war, he anticipates the desire of people to come back to the golden age of couture.
11: Dior dreamed up many of his designs at the chateau, gazing out the window at the fields and gardens that inspired his creativity. Christian Dior had these rose bushes out here like this?
0: Yeah, exactly, because this castle was a farm, too, and he planted everything here, and especially rose trees, too.
11: Today, Ahmel Janoudi tends to these roses, which only bloom in May. They're hand-picked and used to make the company's high-end perfume, just as they were when Dior lived here. They're so fragrant.
0: Yeah, this is the queen of the rose.
11: These gardens are not far from the town of Grasse, the so-called perfume capital of the world.
0: Perfumers uh, used to say that um, it's spicy uh, rose. There's a lot of um, of different uh, fragrances in it. Ah oh la la, elles sont belles, mm.
11: At 89, Lucien Rustin, you can barely see but told us smelling the May rose took her back to when she picked flowers for Dior himself in the mid-1950s. What do you remember of Christian Dior? He wasn't like those city guys, she recalled. He bought this property and made it so beautiful. Everybody in the village just adored him. So many years after his death, what is Dior's impact on the fashion world today?
13: I don't think it's a name that you can utter anywhere in the world without people knowing what you're talking about. There's an
6: essence that's still surviving through all of these years.
11: At that glamorous grand opening, a dinner table had been set for 180. Yes, all at one table. The fragrance of flowers filled the air. And the house of Dior came alive once again.
3: up,
16: there's no other place in this part of the city where you're going to have this view.
3: No. Living the high life.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: When most of these Newport mansions were designed, elegance meant building out. Today, it's all about building up. Lee Cowan takes the measure of the newest crop of skyscrapers.
16: Of all the Manhattan skyscrapers, the Empire State Building finds itself in a curious position. Just look up at all its lofty modern neighbors. They're rail thin, like Beanstalk sprouting above a forest of older, huskier buildings, and there are more going up all the time. The Central Park Tower, set for completion in 2018, will soar more than 1,500 feet, making it the tallest residential building anywhere. Just a block away will be another 1,400-plus-foot tower, this one set to take the record for the world's skinniest, these super talls, as they're called, will eventually make Manhattan look more like a pincushion, changing the skyline one really expensive condo at a time. Not quite a closet. <laughs> no, not at all.
0: A bit of a grand space.
16: There's no other place in this part of the city where you're going to have this view.
0: Right? No. No.
16: Developer Bruce Eichner is counting on the wealthy to buy into this sky high skinny venture. This is going to be somebody's bedroom? It is going to be someone's master bedroom. (laughs) And how much would one pay for this kind of view?
14: Well, for the full floor, which this is, the price is approximately $20 million.
16: The building is 65 stories tall, but with a tiny footprint. The building at its base is 75 feet wide. That's it?
14: That's it. And then it walks out each floor, about four and a half inches of floor. So when you get to the top of the building, you're 105 feet wide.
16: They're like giraffes balancing on one foot. Remarkable from an engineering standpoint, but perhaps more remarkable is they exist solely because there are enough people willing to pay enough to live way up there.
17: What you're buying is the view outside. What you're buying is the location in the sky, and that's what has, has value. Well, I started the museum in
6: 1997. And
16: Carol Willis is the curator of New York's Skyscraper Museum. What's different, she says, is these new skyscrapers aren't so much monuments to corporate capitalism as they are monuments to personal wealth. They're the
17: 21st-century version of the Woolworth Building or the Empire State Building, uh, a place where individuals can own a piece of the sky rather than uh, a company or a developer.
16: There is, of course, a cost to building so high, and it comes in the form of greenhouse gases. Whether it's the Wilshire Grand under construction in Los Angeles, or the Salesforce Tower, soon to be coming to San Francisco, the production of the cement used to build them emits carbon into the atmosphere contributing to global warming. But in a forest in southern Oregon, nature's renewable skyscrapers, trees, may just provide a more sustainable answer. As they grow, trees take carbon out of the atmosphere, and even after they're harvested, they store that carbon. So Lone Rock Logging has decided to send some of its trees to a special mill turns them into a new kind of green high-rise building block.
9: It's going to change the way we build here in the U.S.
16: John Redfield is the chief operating officer at that mill, D.R. Johnson. It's the only lumber mill in the U.S. certified to make something called CLT, which stands for cross-laminated timber. It's made by gluing together layer after layer of wood planks at 90-degree angles and then pressing it all into a thick panel. Now we know what you're thinking, we've been building with wood since we've been building anything. But what makes CLT unique is that it's as strong as steel and up to five times lighter than concrete, making these panels perfect to build a high rise. It basically took them about a day to put up all the columns. Architect Thomas Robinson designed this four-story all-wood building in Portland using CLT. It's similar to buildings in Europe, which has been using CLT to build high-rises for years. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has wanted to spur more tall wood buildings here in the U.S., so two years ago it announced a $3 million prize for the best all-wood design. Robinson's was one of the winners. This 12-story all-wood big brother, to his shorter version, set to be built in downtown Portland later this year. So when the 12-story tower goes up, Is it gonna be something similar to this? Yeah, similar, but actually with thicker panels. There are skeptics, however, especially when it comes to fire, but Robinson has an answer for that too.
18: People don't realize that uh, wood has an inherent fire
9: resistance when it's actually large and it doesn't lose its strength as it burns.
16: That combined with a smaller carbon footprint is starting to grow on a lot of folks. And says John Redfield, the look and smell of wood Doesn't hurt either.
14: When's the last time you've seen somebody hug a a concrete column? You know, they don't, (laughs) but
16: they sure like to hug trees. Wood high-rises likely won't reach as tall as these, made of steel and concrete, but they'll crane a few necks for sure. Skyscrapers of whatever material are signatures of our cities. They're time capsules of design that represent not only who we are, But what and where we'd like to be.
3: Next, Nancy Giles.
13: I'm so bad with plants. At at a certain point, I thought I would just get pictures of plants.
3: How green is her garden? Potted palms were the interior decoration of choice in the late 19th century here at the formal dining room at the Breakers. As for the favorite greenery of today, Nancy Giles has been doing a little digging.
13: So I've been looking around the house lately, thinking, something's missing. There's hardly anything living in my living room. I figured maybe a plant would help, but something hip, something that'll pop, as the designers say. So I hit New York City's flower district, where I met Ashuk Kumar. A.K. to his friends. We have some beautiful Bermelias. A.K. runs tropical like, plants and orchids. What else have we got over here? This is called alocotias. They look like elephant ears. Yes. And what about those bushes over there? This one is called bobcat orchid. A.K., what's this one here? My mom used to grow this. This what one case?
14: is called corn plants. They don't grow corn, Does just the, leaves I corn know plants. I they yeah. don't grow corn. corn
13: but I didn't want the I same old. I wanted cutting edge. What's the new hip plant? From this way. This is called Fig Tree. It's very popular right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's huge. In, yeah, AK showed me price what's price. properly called yeah, the so Fiddle leaf, leaf Fig. Really it might big big seem familiar if you're the type who drools over design magazines. Talk to me about the Fiddle Leaf Fig. What is the big deal with that plant?
7: The Fiddle Leaf Fig is kind of the, the craze in the design world right now. Mm-hmm. It's really, really beautiful.
13: It's an African fig tree that doesn't produce actual figs, by the way, and interior designer Brad Sherman has been putting it to work.
7: You can put it into a minimalist loft, and it goes great with all sorts of interiors
13: but beauty isn't everything that's another one that is easy i have one small issue because i'm so bad with plants at, at a certain point i thought i would just get pictures of plants because everything i make right, ends, right yeah. you know dying ak insisted yes, that's star. not a problem with the fiddle leaf fig like
17: this. this is very easy people don't have time especially in new york yes you we're have very to, busy you new new have york.
7: to put like a water once a week
13: brad sherman begs to differ
7: Fiddle leaves are more emotional plants, they...
13: What do you mean emotional? They, do they cry? They're,
7: they're sensitive. And that's why Brad is already moving yeah, it does. on. It does look like a piece of sculpture. He showed uh, me his
13: yucca, up, which he thinks is the next it plant.
7: Quality. It doesn't need constant attention and watering. It definitely <laughs> will withstand a little bit of neglect.
13: Oh, this is so pretty, Hadley. Thank you so much. But I wasn't giving up oh, on the fiddly is fig. Is that it? That's it. I Here went it for a third opinion. So how old is she?
8: Ten years, actually.
13: This is a ten-year-old plant.
8: Ten-year-old plant.
13: How did you keep it alive for so long?
8: Some people would say neglect.
13: <laughs> <laughs> Landscape designer Hadley Peterson has a <laughs> beloved fiddly fig tucked away in her New Jersey home. <laughs> Are you feeling like the hipness of <laughs> you making a <laughs>
8: statement with the plant? I, I don't know. about that. I've never kind of felt hip in my life, but if that's it, I'll, I'll take it.
13: And that clinched it. I brought home my very own fiddly Fig. Figgy and I have an agreement. He'll increase my hipness factor, and I'll do my best to keep him alive.
3: Some food for thought just ahead.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
15: Nothing quite says dig in like this unmistakable sight.
19: There's something really iconic about the Chinese takeout box. You see it, and you know exactly what it
15: means. So iconic, in fact, that Peter Kim soon will be featuring it in New York's Museum of Food and Drink, where he is executive director.
19: It's a pretty amazing piece of design. It's all cut from one piece of paper, and it's folded up so you don't have any seams. And what that means is that there's no place for liquids to actually seep out.
15: Yeah, most people who get their Chinese food don't look at that and say, what a great box. No,
19: but it is a wondrous thing.
15: A wondrous work of origami to which you never give a second thought, even on your second helping. When did this box come over from China?
19: Oh, well, in fact, it never came over from China. It is a uh, uniquely American invention.
15: This is an American invention? That's right. It was patented in 1894 by chicago inventor frederick weeks wilcox in the 1970s that red pagoda popularized in san francisco was added along with thank you and enjoy as for the food inside
19: chinese american cuisine itself is very different from food you find in china
15: so we have American food, basically, in an American box, and we all think that we're going around being ethnic.
19: Yes, <laughs> Chinese food in the Chinese takeout box is as American as apple pie.
15: <laughs> and this is as Chinese as I am.
19: Yeah, that's right.
15: No surprise, then, that the takeout box is made in the USA. The biggest company churns out a whopping $300 million a year.
19: There are over 40,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S., and just to put that in context for you, that's nearly three times as many McDonald's as there are in the U.S.
15: There are three times more Chinese restaurants than McDonald's?
19: Almost, yeah.
15: But back to that iconic box. Peter Kim likes to save the best for last.
19: And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, Not only is this takeout container great for holding in food, but if you just pop out the wire handle like that, you like that, Easy. then okay. the container turns into a really nifty little plate.
15: Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you have done America a great service in pointing this out. Yes. Something to keep in mind hey, like at that. your next swanky dinner party. There we go.
10: More or less. Yeah. We've got to get the ball off this way.
3: Still to come.
10: So you maybe take down a little bit where you are. Yep.
3: Designing golfer oh, Jack Nicklaus. And later...
20: Nothing compares to the front of a
3: double-decker bus. Meet a driven designer. Billiards, anyone? Mr. Vanderbilt and his guests played their indoor game in a room designed with walls of marble. As for an outdoor game of our time, if the sport is golf, the designer is golfing great, Jack Nicholas. Jim Axelrod takes us out on the green.
9: It may look like a barren wasteland, but actually, this is just a step on the path to paradise. At least when this guy gets involved.
8: I think this
10: is too busy here. Okay. We'll just expand the lake to just make sure we see water all the way on the, on the
9: right edge. Jack Nicklaus. Yes. Maybe. Yes, sir! Widely considered the greatest golfer in history.
10: It's a little hot. It's that downslope is gone, David
9: is also among the most prolific golf course designers the game has ever known. I I think
10: this, this spot right here is just a little high.
9: On this Sunday morning, he's leading the charge at LaGorse Country Club in Miami Beach with his design team in tow. He's been hired to redo the course, one of nearly 400 his company has designed around the world. When you were playing, it was you against Other golfers. This is you against the land. It it, it fights back, too. Different kind (laughs) of opponent. That's right.
10: Well, you try to make the land and the wind and the weather be your friend. So you try to design around those elements so you're not fighting them, but you're actually using them to help you.
9: He's got no formal training, but at 76 years old, he's collected a lifetime of golf knowledge, right down to the smallest grain of sand.
10: We got the G-angle, and we supplemented it with a very fine angular mason sand. And that, that allowed it to compact a little bit, and it plays a lot better.
4: So if you look at the eyes of Nicholas,
9: Nicholas close? was a ferocious competitor who won a record 18 of golf's major championships over 25 years. Once the competitive part of your playing career was on the, the downside. the downside. downside. <laughs> it's okay. Did the, Well, I mean... <laughs> hey, we all go there. Did the intensity of your desire to build the, the course design business then ramp up? A little bit.
10: But then about 1983 or 4, my, the fellow who was my CEO of my company came to me, and I'm doing a half a dozen golf courses a year. He says, Jack, don't you think it's about time you made your avocation a vocation?
9: It took him a while for his design philosophy to evolve, at first thinking like the champion he was as a player.
10: I got a reputation of building golf courses too hard because I was doing it for tournaments.
9: But the longer he stayed at it, the more he started to think like a businessman. It,
10: it shouldn't be about my ego. Sh- the person who is doing that golf course probably has his own ego. It's not, not my job to go out and do a golf course that suits me. It's my job to do a, a golf course that suits them.
9: Which is not to say his long list of courses doesn't include some of the best in the game. Muirfield Village, near his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. Valhalla in Louisville, Kentucky. Castle Pines in Colorado. Golf Digest currently ranks them all in the top 100 courses in the country. But three-quarters of his work today is overseas, like these projects in Vietnam and Thailand. When we caught up with Nicholas in Miami Beach, he was just back from Turkmenistan. That's right, Turkmenistan. Jack, is 76. What are you going to Turkmenistan for? Have to do a golf course. Most people
10: work all their life to retire to play golf. Well, I played golf all my life to retire to work.
9: He's getting just what he wanted. On the road 200 days a year, his brand extends far beyond golf course design. Not just the golf merchandise you'd expect, but wine, lemonade, even ice cream with a portion of the profits going to charities the Nicholas family supports. Mr. Jack Nicholas. You've won the Congressional Gold Medal. You've won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You're not a guy who needs to say, gee, what did I do with my life? So why press so hard now? Is this to build a business to leave to your family? Well, that's part of it.
10: I I need to leave that for my my kids, my grandkids, and and leave the legacy of a brand and something that, that I've left here.
9: He might take you in with a chuckle, recalling that even as a six-time Masters champion, it took a while for the men who run Augusta to get him his own green jacket.
10: 1963, I won the Masters. They brought out a 46 long, I was a 43 regular. It fit me like an overcoat. Next year I came back and he says, try this one to see how it fits you. It was Tom Dewey's jacket, (laughs) governor of New York and uh, who lost lost to Truman. I wore Tom Dewey's jacket for the
9: next 20 years. Let me get this straight. 1986, the most famous green jacket ceremony, probably in the history of the Masters. You're wearing Tom Dewey's green jacket? Yeah, oh yeah. It was it was it was 30 years old. <laughs> but when it comes to what really matters David. to Jack Nicklaus, don't think for an instant he's mellowing. You don't get to be so the best ever a where you are. without a little edge.
10: Why would you do it then if you know I didn't want to like it? Well, sometimes, you know, it's just. No, no, come on, David. Don't give me the bull. I mean, let's, why would you do something going away when you're playing a shot in here with water sitting behind it? Well, I can. Oh. Huh? You don't need that.
9: Jack Nicklaus knows an awful lot has come his way simply through his astonishing ability to hit a golf ball. Absolutely perfect.
10: Is it a wetland
9: area that you, you're supposed to keep, or what? But what he's designing now is yet another way to be remembered. My walk up the 18th fairway to Augusta
10: is something I remember and I cherish, It'll be with me all my life. But this golf course is gonna be here for a long time, long beyond my golf game in my lifetime, for a lot of people to enjoy and, and, and have fun with. That's a legacy that you can't leave by just hitting a golf show.
3: Still to come, a new take on old
10: standards.
20: 360 degree views out and views in.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: We like to think that good architecture is timeless. But the man Anthony Mason now introduces us to says, Think again.
18: The best place to see the city used to be at the front of a double-decker bus. Now, looking at the back is a pretty good view, too.
20: Well, the backs have become solid plastic, so 360-degree views out and views in.
18: In Thomas Heatherwick's work, his redesign of London's classic double-decker bus, the cauldron he created for the London Olympics, or Google's new California headquarters, You won't find a signature style, but the 46-year-old British designer says the world is growing too similar.
20: There's great benefits to globalization and things that are wonderful and Mm -hmm. fantastic, but it means you need to put very deliberate effort now into helping things have their own soulfulness.
18: Similarity is your enemy?
20: Well, why do something if it already exists?
18: Heatherwick's provocative work was celebrated at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York last year.
20: This can squeeze back to just being a perfect circular object.
18: When the it Wall just... Street Journal proclaimed him Design Innovator of the Year.
20: You should hear this working. I mean, it's so noisy. It's...
18: In his London studio...
20: We knew it, could, it would rock, but we hadn't really fully thought through that it could then be able to go all the way Around.
18: around. Where Heatherwick has also dreamed up a spinning chair. This is the rolling bridge. And a rolling bridge that curls up to let boats pass.
20: It's really nice to see you because we have got stuck in this.
18: Heatherwick building. and his team of 180 architects, artists and designers are now about to make their mark in America. Redesigning the interiors of the Geffen Theater at New York's Lincoln Center. ...and creating the Pier 55 Park. This side
20: elevation that it has, this life to Mm -hmm. it.
18: To be built on 280 pilings in the Hudson River. When did you first get interested in design?
20: When I was little, I, I just was tuned in, very tuned in to the functionality and aesthetics of things around me.
18: His father, an educator and musician, and his mother, a jewelry designer... ...fed his fascination for ideas. Did you at some point find yourself making drawings of ideas of your own?
20: I thought I wanted to be an inventor. Yeah. But then discovered you couldn't study inventing. (laughs) And in Britain, you know, everyone's got the chitty-chitty bang-bang mentality... ...which is that inventor has the word mad stuck at the beginning of it.
18: After graduating the Royal College of Art, he launched his own studio in 1994...
20: Even though London is famous for red double-decker buses, they weren't considered part of our architectural heritage.
18: Six years ago, he was commissioned to do the first redesign of the double-decker bus in half a century. Were you at all nervous having to deal with something that's so iconic?
20: I felt huge responsibility.
18: Heatherwick added a door up front and a sweeping window to the back. This had to do lots of jobs,
20: and our role was to try to make something that would do all of that. But also, I mean, you can see, nothing compares to the front of a double-decker bus.
18: Heatherwick's most celebrated design may be the British pavilion he created for the Shanghai World Expo in 2010 and it
20: seemed like, does Britain yet again talk about castles and queens and Sherlock Holmes?
18: Instead, he wanted to highlight London as one of the greenest cities in the world.
20: What if we built a seed cathedral? And everyone was going, seed cathedral? You mean like a nut shop? And we were going, no.
18: So he implanted seeds in the ends of 60,000 acrylic rods. If
20: I hold it to the light, you see the daylight would come down and illuminate
18: The dandelion-shaped structure won first prize and drew 8 million visitors. His next marquee project is a garden bridge. The underside
20: of the bridge, it felt must be something that's beautiful.
18: A pedestrian walkway that will extend nearly 1,000 feet across the Thames River.
20: In effect, these are like hands coming out of the clay at the base of the, the Thames, holding up a garden, and the garden takes over from there.
18: Do you feel like you're trying to show people something, like, hey, look, this is what yes. we can do?
20: Yes. There are a lot of forces against anything with any specialness happening. So when something at all special happens, I feel very appreciative of it.
3: A tip of the hat to the Q-tip next
15: so these are q-tip flowers yes it's a bouquet of q-tips so it is yeah <laughs> you heard right a bouquet of q-tips evidence to Suzanne Palinchar of the genius behind this everyday product
5: I think people do take it for granted, but that's okay. I don't need them to think about it as an engineering feat.
15: But she certainly does. Palanchar heads up skincare marketing at the U.S. division of Unilever, the maker of Q-tips. How much design is there in a little paper stick? Oh, well, I mean, don't
5: mistake simplicity for lack of mastery or engineering.
15: The Q-tip hit the market in the 1920s as a tiny tool for baby care. Since then, it's gone from wooden sticks to paper sticks, but one thing has never changed. The amount of cotton on both ends of the paper stick,
5: actually the diameter of that cotton, is exactly the same for every single swab. You are kidding. No. You should look at them under a microscope. (laughs) It's that
15: good. That very precision seems to drive Q-tip fans right over the edge. We'll hear them say things like when they open the
5: box of Q-tips, they get like a little rush by looking at how perfectly they're all lined up. (laughs) And so those are the meticulous moms. Those are the OCD set. (laughs) Well, I'll leave it to you. I'll let you describe them. We're gonna be talking about Uh Q-tips today.
15: YouTube is awash in new ways to use this old standby.
1: This too makes an excellent fire starter. Q-tip also makes a good stir and a little bit of water and baking soda. You can use this as an improvised toothbrush.
15: But among the most common uses is one even the manufacturer says is a very bad idea. What we
5: say is on every
15: pack that we sell,
5: do not put Q-tips into your ear canal. It doesn't do any good. That's what people do with them. Well, they shouldn't be using them for that, especially when there are so many other amazing things they can use them for.
15: Whatever amazing thing you do with them, you're unlikely to run out.
5: We produce 32 billion swabs a year. And that's enough swabs that if you laid them out, you could go to the moon and back over three times. If
15: you say so. (laughs) Yeah. So think about that. Next time you reach for a Q-tip or reach for the moon, Just don't reach for your ear.
3: That is Weatherly. She's the boat that won the America's Cup in 1962. Crews battled for the cup in the waters off Newport from 1930 to 1983. In more recent times, the venues have changed. And so have the boats. This is the Enterprise the first of three boats skippered by Harold Sterling Vanderbilt to win the America's Cup back in the 1930s. Now consider the Courageous, the yacht Ted Turner sailed to victory in 1977. Later came a 15-year losing streak, after which high-tech yachts owned by Oracle's Larry Ellison won the Cup back in 2010 and again in 2013. Incidentally, Ellison just purchased his very own cottage at Newport, one that once was home to socialite John Jacob Astor IV. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.